0: You're listening to Policy Room by SPRF. This is part two of a conversation with Dr. Satyaki Roy on the privatization of Indian Railways. To listen to part one first, head over to our previous episode. When the Indian Railways says that we are going to privatize, it's 5% now, but as we have seen elsewhere it doesn't usually stay at 5% for example if you look at the british railways the proposal to privatize a few uh, number of tracks and routes it came up in 19 uh, i think around 88 or so but by 93 the conservative government decided we are going to uh, privatize the entire uh, network so given that uh, given these facts what what do you see could be the implications for the Indian railways, because it is a huge employer uh, in India. Right? Although it has seen a drop in the number of employees from 2008, 13, 14, we had around 13.3 lakh uh, employees working for the Indian railways, which has dropped now in 2018-19 to a little less than 12.3 lakh. So over a lakh, uh, the employment in the railways has seen a fall in over 1 lakh in these two years. So given that and situating that within the overall uh, condition of uh, the labor market in India uh, at this point, do you have any specific comments on that?
1: First of all, I would say that generally, which is being argued, that there would be a rise in the price of tickets. And, and, and if, you see, if you listen to who are, who are basically stakeholders of railway, their opinion is that in certain uh, segments, it can increase even 100%. But international experience is that not necessarily privatization always leads to uh, price uh, increase in the price of services. But the point is, it usually doesn't increase in markets where the market is more or less competitive and the goods are tradable. So there, there is a possibility that even if you privatize, in the short run, uh, uh, are, the, the, the cost or the price of the service may not increase. Now, in case of railways, what is going to happen, this is a natural monopoly in the sense that you are, the argument is made in, in this direction that this is run by the government. If you infuse private capital, then efficiency would increase. But why would it increase? Efficiency, even if you go by market logic, basically depends upon whether you can create a competitive market or not. Here you are basically converting a public monopoly into private monopoly. What is the reason that this kind of competition would increase efficiency? And in those kind of monopoly structures, which is going to continue, even if you privatize, and this is is probably the largest monopoly in our country, there is every possibility that the price would increase. So that would impact the the large number of population. And since, as I mentioned earlier, the majority of the people do not have the option. Everyone cannot opt for air uh, or uh, travel uh, instead of going through trains. So the large number of the population, if because of this privatization prices increase, they would be affected. Now, coming to the question of employment, what is the argument given usually? that when they talk about this operating ratio, you would you'd see that the larger uh, part of the working expenditure is basically what they say is wages and pension. So the number of workers is very large and that needs to be reduced in order to manage the operating ratio. So then only you can make it efficient. Now, first of all, First well, of would, I would argue that what are the major expenditures on, on, on working expenditures in railway? One is human beings, the employees, and the other is fuel. What are the other kind of raw materials you require for a railway service? Now, to say, for instance, in a software farm, if you calculate the share of wages of employees or salaries of employees, which shall be total expenditures, it would, it would reach more than 90%. So that doesn't say anything. It basically depends upon the nature of the industry. So in case of railways, what has happened, if you see the depreciation fund, that expenditure on that has declined. So so what has happened, the maintenance cost, the proportion of money that is going to that has declined. And if that declines, the other expenditure left is wages and salaries to the employees and pensions and all this. And you have to pay that because you are committed to that. And so if that share increases, then they say that the operating ratio is facing a stress because you have a large number of employees. Railway has already mentioned that recruitment is, is, is freezed and no new recruitment would be happening. But what, I'm, what I, I would suggest, and they are basically going for contractualization. This is the essential feature which has most of the time uniformly happened in all the countries. So privatization basically leads to job cut. It leads to contractualization. Now, the role of the public sector, one of the role is to provide jobs. And providing jobs is considered by public sector only. Private sector, it is a collateral effect. They, they, they do not have any intention to create jobs. Only the government has, should have the intention to create employment. It also sets the standards that what kind of employment would, which, which should get a social sanction. So a public sector employee has get certain benefits. They get certain rights. And that sets the standard put a pressure upon private sector that, look, if you want to employ, this should be the ideal way of employing people. Now, this is just reversed during this regime, in this neoliberal regime. So you, you look at those public sector employees as if they are the privileged few. So the large number is not getting these advantages. So the argument is, why should you maintain these kind of rights and facilities for a few? So let us dismantle that and i would say this argument seems to me like this that in a country there are few people who are very, uh, they have very they have places to uh, reside they have they have houses and there are a large number of people who do not have houses they do not have their own uh, place to stay now if you try to equalize them what would be your argument Would you like to dismantle the the entitlements that these people have? They have houses, those houses need to be destroyed. And make all the people equal, would that be the argument? Or you would suggest that everyone should have their place to stay. They should have their house. So I would say that this kind of argument is applied not only in railways. It is applied in all other sectors. That look, these are the few people who are getting this advantage, which they are not supposed to get so let us contractualize and look at the organized sector in india even in the organized sector roughly one third of the employment is already informalized. and the labor code which the government is has already proposed it is nothing but informalizing the formal employment so you make hire and fire much more uh, easy and flexible so this is also part of this uh, this privatization project which is being which is being suggested by By the government in the context of railways. I would also say that when we measure, and it is, as you mentioned, that this is not about this government. Across dispensation, the argument, and across countries as well, Uh, when you argue in favor of privatization, the necessary argument that it's put forward is this that it increases efficiency it increases the performance of of those services. Now, first of all, I would say that I'm not denying the fact that a lot of restructuring and modernization and reforms need to be done in railways. There is no doubt about that. And if you see the ratio of uh, average ticket fare of passengers to average freight rate, that is one of the lowest in India. It is roughly around 0.3%, and which is even lower in, comparing, in comparison to uh, developing countries. So there is room for, uh, and there is also, uh, there is a rationale that not necessarily that people would not accept a reasonable price rise if you were able to uh, provide a good service. So not necessarily people would say that if the pr- uh, price is increased to some extent, we are not going to peak. So I would suggest that those kind of restructuring can be done. But the point is, how do you measure efficiency? What is this kind of restructuring is going to do? Particularly through this privatization, what is going to happen when we measure efficiency? We usually measure in the shorter run. And you would say that, so the speed of the train has increased, the revenue generated has increased. And so you tend to argue that, look, the privatization has given these benefits. First of all, the impact of privatization needs to be assessed in a longer run of time period where you can bring in the impact of distributional effects also. And there you have to see who are the people who are basically excluded from this process even if the revenue has increased. So that you have to take into account while assessing the performance of a particular sector. Now, what other things that would happen when you are in this 150 routes, which the government is basically saying to private players, what would be the, what would be the commitment of these private players or companies to the consumers? That look, if you opt for these private trains, OK, the fear is a little bit high and maybe much higher than what it is now. But you would reach the destination according to the schedule. Now, how this would be done? This should be guaranteed because this would create the comparative advantage of private players vis-a-vis the railways which would be under Indian railways. First of all, I would argue that you are not proposing uh, to, to give entry to private players say, for instance, where new railways would be required, the private players are not going to come to set up railways in some hilly places or near forests or tribal areas where the initial number of passengers would be less. What you have done, that over a period of time, the market that you have created, the consumers that you have created, and which are areas of potential profit, that are been handed over to private players. So these 150 routes are chosen because of that. That there you have created spaces for potential profit over these years. And those are handed to private players. The, the important thing is, again, what you will do, that in order to ensure the time schedule, so Indian railways, the trains which would be under public sector, they would get lesser space in the railway track in the sense they had to suffer delay because you have to you have to ensure a guaranteed time schedule for this private players so you see in future after this privatization the more delays would be happening in railways in trains which would be operated by public sector and again this would reinforce the argument that look again people would shifting from this public sector to private trains Because their time is being maintained. No one would ask that why they're able to maintain time. This has happened also in in air air, uh, uh, aviation industry, also, in case of air uh, travel, also. So the prime segments where you can make profits, which gives you the resources for cross-subsidization, more and more you are handing over those segments to private players. You will be given proper infrastructure. Now, if I ask that how you calculate efficiency, you have to bring in the cost of creating these railway tracks, creating stations, creating signaling arrangement. All these are being used, created by public money. And these would be used free of cost by private players. So when you would be measuring efficiency, my simple point is, that all these things need to be taken into account. And in most of the cases, if you take into account these things, you will find that the simple argument that we make using cost-benefit analysis, that the if revenue has increased, passengers are basically opting for private trains rather than public trains, all these things because uh, um, do not actually uh, stand in the sense that Uh, you have to use a counterfactual in order to analyze what happens in efficiency. So simply you cannot say that since revenue has increased, so this process is much more efficient. And similarly, the kind of change that you are proposing for, uh, for, for the employment, particularly in a sector like railways, it will create huge unemployment. Already people are saying that many people would be losing jobs. And that would be in the tune of about 3.5 lakhs. This is an initial estimate. So large number of people would be losing jobs. They're proposing contractualization. And at the same time, the price is likely to rise, or the cost of travel is likely to rise for the largest section of the population. Uh,
0: Dr. Raj, a couple of points um, uh, based on the remarks that you've just made. Uh, the first one being, really, uh, uh, is there any logic or what is the logical fallacy between you know, uh, in subjecting, uh, and the operations of an institution such as Indis- uh, Indian Railways to, say, commercial considerations of say profitability? That is the first question that I wanted to ask you. Over you know, or prioritizing an objective such as profitability over uh, welfare considerations that is the first question uh, the second one being when you look at uh, the quantum of uh, public sector employment in india uh, with respect to the uh, entire population uh, as a whole when you can, when when you contrast india with say other countries such as brazil where for every uh, thousand uh, people in the population, you have 57, I'm sorry, Brazil, over 100 people in public sector uh, employment. For China, it is around 50 or 60, around 57, I think. And then for countries such as Norway and Sweden, it's in the mid-hundreds. When you consider such countries and you look at India, where it is around 16 people per thousand population finds employment in the uh, public sector, um, so one of the arguments that uh, that are often made is when you have such a low proportion of your population finding employment in the public sector that has a natural um, uh, sort of a negative implication on the on, on one the quality and secondly the extent of uh, your public services so uh, keeping these two in mind is it really uh, is it sort of a, a, a bogey that is being placed in front of us, for when when you say that you know your the extent of uh, labor is the problem um, in efficiency and things like that, if if you could go into a little
1: detail on that. Okay. 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 So regarding oh. the first question, I will say that this need to be understood in a larger political economic context. That why you are basically trying to sell public properties, community properties. You are uh, and, and, and you are basically trying to financialize them. This is a larger structure. Because you see, in this process of financialization, if you basically try to earn profits, and you, you have to take into account the global context, it is happening in case of land, it is happening in case of water resources, it is happening in case of electricity, it is happening in case of pension funds. It is happening in case of railways in several sectors where you had some common property or collective property, collective in the sense but just state owned. So not a private property. So all these are gradually being transformed. This is being done because first of all, you have to turn these properties into financial assets. Now, you, you know that already the government is basically trying to mobilize uh, funds from the, from the financial market. IPOs are being released and most of the time it is being done in other sectors also, in other countries also. So once you financialize the sector in the sense that you establish private property and then you sell that asset to, to individuals, now, the performance of this whole segment or this sector would be determined by the, the performance or guided by the performance of the financial returns. So then the question of profitability would become even more stronger. So the question is that, you basically turn a collective property or a public property which was created for a particular purpose and then you basically turn them into financial assets make made is established private property and com- through commercializations and then you say that these assets prices, the fluctuation of those prices would actually guide the performance and the policies regarding those sectors. This is done throughout the world in this neoliberal regime. Because, of course, sometimes neoliberalism is is explained as a regime where uh, most of the people say it is minimum government and maximum governance. I would say that it is not actually minimum government; It is withdrawal of the government from productive economic activity. But it is far more enhanced intervention of the government in society in the sense you facilitate the preconditions to establish institutions that protect market so what you do is the existing institutions which were publicly owned you have to dismantle them you create institutions which establish private property and you establish market relations in the process of distribution And you establish the necessary institutions for the functioning of those markets. And at the same time, you financialize the whole operation of of, of this process of accumulation. And then it basically creates the rationale that look if the shares of the prices, the shares of these industries are falling, then what needs to be done? So profitability and, 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 and actually satisfying the shareholders becomes prime importance than a, a productive investment and output even. So in this process, this is being done. The same thing is happening in case of railways. So even if larger section of the population would not, would not, would be, would likely to be excluded in this whole process of privatization, but in this regime, it hardly matters. It hardly matters. It has happened in other sectors as well. So so basically, they would try to put this railway as a private asset and allow foreign players to buy and the private corporates to buy these assets so that this can be traded in the market. The second issue is regarding this, what you are saying that uh, the the very small uh, share of private sector employees. This had been the case in India. Now, this is basically, as you know, that more and more, during this past three decades what has happened that you have you have shrunk the space of public sector in productive economic activity you have reduced public investment and if you even if you look at the growth trajectory of india in the recent period it was basically dependent upon corporate sector investments so in investments also where the public sector investment was earlier dominating is now outcompeted by uh, private players. So you have gradually reduced investment. You have gradually reduced your uh, economic activity in public sectors. And through this process of privatization, what has happened? That you reduce the share of this whole segment. And when you reduce, as I mentioned earlier, when you reduce this segment and... The the rights which were established by people historically and and this public sector, the rationality of the public sector was not actually driven only by profitability. It was basically to create infrastructure. It was basically to create domestic capabilities of industries. It was basically to create uh, infrastructure in a newly independent country. Because at that time, the private players or the private capitalists didn't have enough fund to create railways, to create roads, to create steel industry. And then you depended dependent upon public money, you create the public sector. And that's the history of the growth of public sector. Now what has happened when the corporates and their profit have increased, now you have to destroy this in order to create space for the corporate. And so what you have done, is you are basically shrinking the space of public sector. And when you do that, of course, the share of public sector employees, as you mentioned, in the total number of workers have drastically declined. And not only that, within the public sector, you are introducing contractualization, which is basically uh, 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 deviating from the norm which the public sector actually established. The role of the public sector, as I mentioned, is also to provide a norm of employment. So if this economy, in the economy, if the share of the public sector is higher, then you get a large number of workforce who have established rights, who have certain income standards, who have certain labor rights. And on the basis of that, they argue, they negotiate with the state. Now what has happened If the number of these workers have declined, as it has declined because of privatization, people who are working in private enterprises, they are the dominant force. So they make the voice. They make the voice. And if you see, a certain shift has happened within the middle class also, vis-a-vis the role of the state in the economy. 20 years, 30 years back, the majority of the middle class constituted people who were working in public sectors in banks, in insurance, in railways, in schools, colleges, universities. They are the people who are basically working in public enterprises, public sectors, and they were constituting the major voice of the middle class. So their perception about the state vis-a-vis the economy is different from the current middle class because there is a subtle shift has taken place. Now the majority of the middle class are not, who are employees of public sector. The majority of the middle class are basically working in private sector, in corporates. And so their their vision about the state and and their their, uh, perception about the role of the state in the economy and society, we see a drastic change that has taken place also. And now this infinitely small and very small segment of the public sector employees they are shown as the privileged few. So, so now the question is that why they should get those rights instead of these rights being replicated to others. We see a counter argument which is dominant these days. Uh, it, it's interesting that you've uh,
0: made a point about you know, this gradual, I wouldn't say gradual, but this change in class characteristics in um, the Indian labor market. And this is something that has been documented also. For example, when we look at public sector employment, we, within a short span, relatively short span, I think 2012, 13 uh, to now, the, the rise in contractual labor has sort of been meteoric. You know, you have it rising from around 36% or so. Uh, to currently just over 50%, uh, around 50 to 53%. So to go a little more into the uh, and this uh, we can use this to sort of uh, close off our uh, podcast today and for you to make your final remarks on this issue. Um, to do, delve a little more into the implications of this move. This has been documented elsewhere also, and um, the Boston Consulting Group in a 2017 report, they made a note of how um, with privatization, for example, in say France, Italy, um, uh, Britain, Sweden, they have made a note of how stagnating and low levels of public sector investment into the railways has serious consequences in terms of safety, in terms of delays, in, uh, and you know, other negative consequences for uh, passengers. And uh, coming back to India, we also see how this rise in contractualization has. uh, There's no real regulation of any sorts, even when you have the Minimum Wages Act or you have the Contract Labor Regulation and Abolition Act. Contractors don't really pay heed. Like, for example, you had a CAG report that came in last year, where of the total number of contracts that were audited, a minuscule a percentage only were you know uh, seen as following the provisions of uh, labour regulation so situating that again we see that when there is an increase in contractualization it is largely on the backs of uh, underpaid women in india and we see that it has implications for social justice also in terms of how reservation uh, constitutionally mandated reservations uh, taken a big hit. So if you could close out today's podcast by making your final remarks on this uh, issue a okay.
1: little See, first of all, I would again argue that uh, this whole argument uh, of, of labor cost being higher and so the problem uh, occurs. Uh, I don't buy this argument as I said, that just share of share of wages and salaries in working expense doesn't say much. There are, It depends upon the industry. In some industries, the labor is the major input. And I believe that uh, in case of railways, if you consider the working expense, it is supposed to be high, nothing wrong in that. Now, the other important issue is when you are looking for other experiences in other countries, as we mentioned in Britain and France, in other countries. See, privatization was basically used uh, in order to restructure the industry in the terms of ownership, in terms of functioning, in terms of pricing and also in terms of shedding labor. So, all this comes in a package. That has happened in uh, all the countries. And as I mentioned in the beginning, that a lot of modernization, a lot of expansion needs to be done. There is no doubt about that in Indian railways. You have to improve your service and you have to mobilize your resources. What this privatization would do, I will give you one example. Take the case of Container Corporation of India. Now, if you sell that, they have an ownership of land worth of 40,000 crores. Now, immediately you would earn 40,000 crores. But this asset you are selling forever. So so in case of, say, Chris, they have huge mines of data which is being accumulated over these years. Once you privatize, that goes to the private sector. So public assets are handed over. That is the prime intention of this process of privatization and financialization. And I do not think that labor is the argument. is actually defendable. And even if you see for other industries also, it is indefensible because even in CII report also does not suggest that this is the main problem in Indian industry. Okay, So every time it is said that labor is the problem, and as you mentioned, If you consider minimum wage laws, violating the law is the norm. And and there is a social sanction for that. I've never come across a person or or an owner or an entrepreneur being put behind bars because he has not paid minimum wages. So this has become the norm. The same is the case of contract workers. And once you casualize, once you contractualize, What happens is the norms which were being applicable, as you said, in case of uh, reservation uh, on the question of uh, proportion of women participation in the labor market and all this, these are grossly compromised. And so this is going to happen in the largest public sector of our country. And this is going to have a very uh, big negative impact in the labor market. Because, as I said, that public sectors used to set norms for the labor market as well. It was not only providing service, but it was setting the norm. And if you consider that it is the, the wage and even in the macro level, if you see there is a sharp drop in the share of wages in value added there is a sharp drop in compensation of employees in total GDP of the country. So the workers are losing out for the past two, three decades in India. So it is not that that they should be posed as a plea uh, that their cost of the labor, since the cost of labor has increased, so we need to privatize. The move of privatization is basically to serve the corporates and to financialize the whole sector. And basically, you rely on market or distribution of these kind of essential services so here are you there
0: uh, thank you so much uh, dr rai for taking time of your busy schedule to talk to us about this very pertinent issue um, from SPRF, we also have um, a, a discussion paper on this very issue called uh, analyzing the case for privatization in the indian railways that is available on our website so to all our viewers i would. Uh, request you if you want to get a little more perspective on this uh, on this issue you could uh, go to our website and take a look and again uh, Dr. Roy uh, thank you so much so it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Policy Room produced by the Social and Political Research Foundation. SPRF is a youth-oriented public policy think tank based in New Delhi working to spark dialogues for a better democracy.
1: Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.